The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is quite an honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Joan Dye Gussow. She is a professor emeritus at Columbia University Teachers College, where she has enlightened students for 40 years about something she calls, in fact, she coined the term nutritional ecology. She is an author, a food policy expert, environmentalist, and gardener extraordinaire. The New York Times has called her the matriarch of the Eat Locally, Think Globally food movement. And even Michael Pollan, the popular food writer, admits that whenever he thinks he has an original thought, he realizes that Joan said it first. Barbara Kingsolver, Alice Waters, Marion Nessel, and more dietitians, nutritionists, farmers, and chefs than we can ever count hold her in deep admiration for helping us think more broadly about food, nature, and our future, and for speaking up about it. Joan, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Well, in preparing for our interview, I went back and, of course, I read about your history, and I learned that you were actually a pre-med student in California at Pomona College. You then moved to New York, worked for Time Magazine, and then went on to get your master's and EDD at Teachers College. And I am curious to know how all of those events transpired. (laughs) Well, the pre-med part sort of ended before I graduated, I have to confess. I mean, this was 1950 when I graduated. And in my junior year, I guess, I realized that I wanted to get married and have children, and I didn't know how you could do that and be a doctor. This is really what it was in those years. I didn't know anybody whose mother worked. Mm -hmm. It was like we know one. I knew one woman whose mother worked. She was poor, her father was dead, and her mother had to work, and we all felt sorry for her. So the idea that you could be a doctor and actually have a family was not within my ken. So I changed to being what was called a biology chemistry major, which meant I didn't have to take German and I didn't have to take physics. I got to take survey physics. But that's other than that, I finished as a pre-med. But by the time I finished, I had a professor who knew I was interested in journalism and I really wanted to write. So he had written to Time magazine asking if they had any positions for people just out of college. And they wrote and said they had a traineeship. And he just sent me the materials. He was wonderful. He just sent, and he was a chemistry professor, so he could have wanted me to continue in my, you know, to be a graduate student in chemistry or something. And I ended up, I had a, I think a $135 high scholarship prize from Pomona. I took, I used that. I flew east. I went to Time Magazine and I interviewed to be a trainee. And it was a very competitive thing. They had said in their thing that you shouldn't come at Easter when they normally interviewed because it was very competitive and so forth and so on. So I, But I went anyway. And I was interviewed by several people. And at some point, somebody said to me, what are you going to do if you don't get this job? And I was just this incredibly naive California girl, you know, come to New York. And I said, I don't have the faintest idea. <laughs> and afterwards, the woman, they hired me. And the woman who hired me said they were afraid I'd end up on the street, so they felt they had to hire me. Oh, wow. Uh, It was a wonderful job for a woman. There were not many 
quote careers for women in those days that were that were as interesting as as doing that. We interviewed people. We didn't get to write. We had to write up research, but we interviewed people. And then the time came when I met somebody that I was going to marry. I quit time. I got married. And there was a period in there that you didn't mention, which was the period when I was home with my husband and two boys, going mad with two small children. And I had done such wonderful, exciting work beforehand, and I was home sort of alone with two boys, with my husband coming home to say hello in the evening. And I was trying to think what I was going to do when I grew up. And I was very interested in... When I was pregnant with my first child, my brother-in-law had sent me a book by Adele Davis, and I got very interested in, she was then considered a fattest in the nutrition field, but I got very interested in food and nutrition. And so at some point, I simply decided that that's what I should do. So I went back to school in nutrition. That's interesting. You know, I've heard this a couple of times now about Adele Davis, who was seen as kind of a quack at the time, but she led some very interesting, incredible researchers to their field. So it's interesting that you mention her. Yes. Well, in fact, she she graduated from Berkeley, which they don't like to admit. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I think she had only a master's degree, but she did go to Berkeley. So Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Now, I have three of your books with me in the studio. The first is The Feeding Web, and that was really a compilation of articles that you used in teaching issues in nutritional ecology to your students. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say, and let me let our listeners know, that the date of this publication was 1978, I believe. Yep. And I need to read the dedication because I'm fascinated by dedications. You dedicate this book to my mother and father who taught me not to be afraid of hard work or controversy, to my husband who gave me the confidence to try to save the world, and to my sons, Adam and Seth, for whose sake, among others, I am trying to save it. That is a beautiful dedication, and I think for many of us who are, you know, we're still on this path of trying to save the world, save the earth, Mm -hmm. we do that with the future in mind, and aren't we lucky when we have people in our lives that have given us the groundwork to be strong and to support us as we're moving through our life. The second book I have is This Organic Life, which you have dedicated to Alan, your now deceased husband, and then finally Growing, comma, Older, a chronicle <laughs> of the comma is very important. I understand that. Very important, yes. Growing, definitely. comma, Older, A Chronicle of Death, Life, and Vegetables, and this particular book is dedicated to Mother Nature. Yes. So I think the course of dedications is very interesting. So I need to ask you, of those books and your time going through those, were there pieces in those books that you want to bring forth? What is it about those three books that bubble up to the top, if you were to summarize the importance of each one? Well... It will sound definitely immodest to say it, but the feeding web always surprises me because, as you know, it's a collection of articles. There are various topics. Each chapter is a topic. And there's a collection of articles, which obviously are dated because they precede 1978. And then there's an essay at the end of each of them that I wrote sort of summarizing and where I think it's all going. I'm always astonished when I read those to realize that I could have written them yesterday with some updating of some of the data in them, that the essays have not have not dated in a sense, and that the 
when when the book was published, it came out at the time. The New York Times was on strike. I'd been promised a review by Mimi Sheridan. The New York Times was on strike. Uh, my publisher didn't have any books in the bookstores because of a complication in distribution. So it really did not do it. I thought it was going to change the world, and of course it didn't hardly make much get much attention at all. But one of the reviewers who was a food technologist said, "Money the readings went back to 1975, and many of the problems I'd identified had already been resolved. And I just burst out laughing, saying, oh, thank God. <laughs> wow. They haven't exactly been resolved. The energy problem is not exactly resolved. The food problem is not resolved. The limits to growth problem is not resolved. So I'm proud of having identified out of my own just struggle to understand the world a lot of problems that exist that that are still being struggled with. Mm -hmm. As far as the other two books go, um, the first one was really... I was technically retired, though I still teach, and I wanted to write a book about, I wasn't sure what, but I suppose mostly about trying to grow my own food and the whole conclusion I'd come to that we should try to have relocalized because it was the only way we were going to save the world. And so I talked to a publisher, in fact, Chelsea Green, it was Chelsea Green, and they, they the guy said he'd help me with it, and I said, no, 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 I've already done books at people's beck and call I don't want that. I want to write my own book. And so I just struggled through this book. And I don't think there was a certain aha moment, which I think I talk about in the book, where I suddenly thought it's really all about food. It was really all about food and what was wrong with the food system as we have it. And but and sort of blended in with all my feelings about gardening. And it's it's interesting that a lot of people have responded to it. It's been it's had a long life, and Chelsea Green is wonderful, and that they keep it in print, and it still sells. And and the other one, the last one, growing, comma older, um, really started as I say in the book because my husband died after 40 years of marriage, and I and I made the shocking discovery that I didn't miss him, and it was so shocking to me because I assumed I'd had a happy marriage. I mean, you know, it wasn't perfect. We didn't always agree on everything, but it's like, you know, I would say to my students, you should have as happy a marriage as I have. And so it was very shocking to me to discover that I didn't miss him, and I spent about 10 years sorting it out, actually, the time between the two books. I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of it. I'd kept a long journal while he was dying, and I had a lot of material, and I really, and I wanted somehow to do it in a way that did not um, trash him. I didn't want to say he was wrong and I was right and, you know, all this kind of thing. I wanted to somehow get clear why it was that I didn't miss him. How could it be that someone I'd lived with for 40 years I didn't miss? Probably, for me, the the most important thing about that book was that I had the guts to tell the truth about it. Yeah. People urged me to do it, to t- do the book, and they said, Joan, I'm sure other people feel the way you feel, and they never say it. And that is really the truth. I mean, we now have two major female authors who lost their husband suddenly. And in the case of Joyce Carol Oates, she put her book out two years after her husband died, and her book was talking about how incredibly awful and painful and terrible and unlivable it was, and she was already married by the time the book came out. Hmm. So she recovered very fast. And I thought it was time for someone to be honest about that, you know, and not and not sort of hide it. And it's been really interesting what's happened. Every time I've gone out, I, when it first came out, I went out and talked about talked to a lot of gardening groups, 
And because for complicated reasons, they'd all heard me at a meeting and they, in the various gardening, they're great for selling books. And I went to this, the first one, I had no idea what people's reaction would be when I said these words that I hadn't missed my husband. And so I introduced the talk, I, about a hundred women in the room. And I said, and it, you know, it began when I made the shocking discovery that I didn't miss my husband and they all burst out laughing. <laughs> And I really, I just stood, stepped back. I was stunned. Yeah. And it happened every time I talked to a group of women. Every yeah. time. And when there were men present, it didn't happen. <laughs> and they were not laughing from embarrassment, I assure you, Melinda. They were, they were laughing because they understood. Yeah. So I'm happy to, I just got an email the other day from a woman thanking me for relieving her of her guilt for the fact that she wanted not to have to go to Florida every year and maybe she'd spend three months apart from her husband and he couldn't believe that and she was feeling guilty. So for me, that book, that and other pieces like the piece that you mentioned to me me earlier before we were on the air about my obituary in that book, there are are funny things in that book. The other one that I really like is the the chapter about working out and how the Micro liposuction chapter when I oh, go yes. off about yes. people getting themselves fixed up. Our priorities. Are chapters I really like in that book. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think I'm proudest of the fact that I put it out there about how women often feel somewhat more liberated than they would expect to feel when they lose a husband. And mm-hmm. that's not an easy thing to say. That's right. Well, I started to interrupt you when you mentioned the feeding web because I, too, had the same feeling when I was going through some of the essays in there and the articles that, my gosh, they're still pertinent today. And so it was quite striking to be able to go back and look at those and see the parallels mm. to our own universe today. I need to just remind our listeners that we are speaking with Joan Dye Gussow. She is a professor emeritus at Columbia University's Teacher College, where she has enlightened and probably depressed students for 40 years (laughs) about nutritional ecology and the relationship between really food, nature, and our future. And I say that, I'm, I'm actually quoting you, you willingly admit that many times the subjects that that we both talk about are indeed depressing. And that leads me to ask you, you know, we are consistently raising critical yet depressing issues about the exploitation of our earth. And yet you stay positive. So how do you do that? How do you stay in this positive light and you don't go down to the, maybe you do go to the depths of despair, but you come right back up. I'm actually in the middle. I'm just before we talked, I was trying to finish up some chapters and finally send them off to the publisher and say, look, this is ever going to be a book. I'm trying to write a book on hope. So I'm thinking a lot about what it's possible to be hopeful about. And for myself, I think it's temperament. I do think I have a very optimistic temperament, and I have an overdeveloped sense of humor, and I can usually laugh at things. So I think it's partly temperament. But it's also, I finally came to the end point, which said to me, okay, everything those of us who try to follow what's going on look at seems like it's going in the wrong direction, and it doesn't look very hopeful. But the reality is that then you read a piece which once again says that if we turned everything into organic agriculture, we could actually reverse global warming or at least capture all the carbon that's coming out in any given year. And there are solutions. There really are possible solutions. 
And we don't really know anything much at all about how nature works. And so my assumption is that nature may have some not negative surprises for us. There may be things that nature brings us. And I have to say, in the teeth of Sandy, which really wiped me out two years ago, you know, just wiped me out completely. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just, this year is finally my first year of recovery from Sandy, which was this awful storm, if everybody doesn't know that, right. that wiped out much of the East Coast, or New Jersey at least, and New York. I'm refusing to assume it's hopeless, because if you assume it's hopeless, then it is, because you're not going to do anything. So I'm going to do my best to be responsive to nature, to live as responsibly as I can. And there's nothing more you can do, I mean, except to try to act politically, and I do. Mm-hmm. So there's no magic bullet to remaining optimistic in the present world, I must say. Well, but I think it's possible. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned being political because you have a story where you talk about testifying in front of Congress, and this was back in the 70s, I want to say, when you were talking about advertising cereals to children. Of course, there were nutritionists in the community that commended you for speaking up. And then there was someone from the food industry who said that you were acting inappropriately. Yes, very. Well, they, somebody, one person wrote the dean at Teachers College and said, what business, I wasn't even a professor and I was not an expert on advertising and what did I, what did I mean by doing this? And fortunately, the dean wrote and said, I guess you haven't heard of academic freedom, which was wonderful. I mean, I have to say that I'm afraid that if I'd been at a land-grant school, which was more dependent on the goodwill of industry, I mean, I know, I know a professor at Cornell who spoke out and that president of Cornell, I know this for a fact, this is many years ago, so I can say it, but I know for a fact the president of Cornell got a letter from a head of a big food company saying, if, you, if you're if you concerned about getting grants from us, you better shut this person up, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a tough world out there. But I was very, very lucky in being a teacher's college. I want to just follow up about your comment about academic freedom. And I see it Mm -hmm. today with some of my friends and colleagues, the fear, even fear within the newspaper reporting business. Oh, it's terrible, Melinda. Terrible. It is. It it is truly frightening. Yes. Yes. And the the thing is that at this point, well, we, you know, one can bring up genetic engineering. At this point, the powers that be are so moneyed and there's so much money being thrown into into distracting people from the truth that get, I mean teaching is really hard these days. To, I, I went to a went to a meeting the other night and they were showing a film which I have misgivings about because I think it's one very one sided and and yet when you try to sort it all out, what, you know what's true, what's not true, the din of misinformation is so huge and. You know, this constant bombardment about how we have to feed the world. Well, if we if we have to feed the world with, you know, modern agriculture, we've failed. Absolutely. <laughs> we've had modern agriculture for a long time now, and we produce more food than we can use, and people are still starving. So, I suspect the film you may have seen was called Farmland. Yes, I just read about that film. I yes. haven't seen it. Uh, Jim Goodman just wrote a review of that film, and it's a very important Oh, I saw that. I saw that, yes. He was an old friend of mine. Oh, yes, he's wonderful. Well, 
in line of speaking about speaking up or shutting up, you have a mm-hmm. wonderful story in this organic life. You're out at a restaurant with a friend, and you've just learned, and this happens to me all the time, you've just learned a salient piece of information about the farm-raised salmon that comes encrusted with horseradish, and you're debating with yourself, do I say something? Do I order it? Gosh, it sounds delicious, but then again... And you know, and do I ruin her meal by telling her about it? Exactly. And that, that is the dilemma that I think I face and others face. Do we have a responsibility, do we not, to share this information that we have uh, to help protect Mother Nature and the Earth as we move forward? It's very hard. Uh, but it's, it's very, very hard, hard because before you know it, people don't want to go out and have dinner with you anymore. You're so funny that you say that, Melinda, because I'm always saying I'm the sort of person who always wrecks dinner parties. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody brings up something casually, and I write bore right into it and, and, and tell them more than they really want to know. And I have to say, it's funny, after writing books, I mean, I have that chapter about travel and how we travel too much and how we shouldn't be burning up all that fuel traveling. And I have very dear friends who at that time were driving every weekend out to Shelter Island, which is a huge long trip, every weekend. And they knew me, and they'd read the book. I think people are in denial. I think people don't apply it to themselves. I don't think that's an original thought. I just think it's very true and that we can't escape that fact. Well, it's easier not to know. You know, the, the term living in very ignorant much. bliss is certainly certainly holds true. And I'm always discouraged by those who don't want to know because there's so much at stake. I know. As I say in, in growing comma older, when I'm trying to sort out where my husband and I were different, and I say I took the red pill and he took the green pill, I realized that I really had come to terms with the reality of what I was teaching, and it was very painful. And I cried a long time when I. It just hit me one day. Something I read something that just all of a sudden I said, "Why am I crying?" And I thought it's because I believe what I'm teaching. And, you know, I'm teaching about all things like limits to growth and food and population and, you know, all these things that are wrong. And it looks like we're too far down the hole to escape. And to realize that and to come to terms with it was very hard. But I will say, having done that, it's much easier. I mean, I do think that finally getting over denial and just facing it and dealing with the reality turns out to be really not so horrible. I mean, it's a relief. It's one of the reasons you say I'm sort of optimistic. I think because I'm not, there's not always in the background this tickle saying to me, you know, you're not facing, I don't want to talk about that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that you mention in your books is that when we arouse concern, we have a responsibility to try to figure out something to do about it. And mm-hmm. That's really the conundrum, isn't it? It's trying to figure out the best strategies to do something to move us forward in a positive way. Yes. Well, I remember vividly the year that I was able to say to my students, oh, my God, Al Gore was doing hearings on global warming in the 80s, and he knows about it. And so if we elect Al Gore president, this is when he was running you know, we have a hope of actually electing someone who knows about this. And then, of course, he became vice president, and he didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the political system is yet another. I guess perhaps that's another book that you can write in your 90s. I don't know. <laughs> in 2012... I don't know how I'd be hopeful in that one. I don't, I don't really know, Melinda. I did, several years ago, give a talk in Ohio, and I had 
it was a time of the of the uh, Occupy movement, and I finally said I was calling for revolution. I just think we had to have a revolution of some sort because I didn't think we'd attract enough people's attention to agriculture or to food. I thought it had to be a revolution about economic inequality. And I think that revolution is building. I mm-hmm. think that finally is get, attracting people's attention. Well, the degree to which it's gotten really unfair. I want to thank you for something that you said in a talk called Food Talks. This is available online. It's a YouTube clip of you speaking in 2012. And you bring forth a review of a book called The Culture of War, Pearl Harbor, Hiroshima, 9-11, Iraq by John Dower. And it is a review. And you pull out a wonderful quote, and that is, for it is virtually the nature of a system to isolate and disable challenges to its fundamental assumption. When the machine is racing furiously, doubts are just so much sand in the gears. And I remember towards the end of that talk, you called on all of us to be the sands in the gears and to raise mm. these doubts. You know, these doubts have been raised against good movements. Let us raise these doubts against those that are harming us. Yeah, well, I always remember Michael Jacobson saying years and years ago that the real problem we face, we face, I will call it the Fox News problem, the real problem we face, he says, these other guys, these guys who are on the part of the establishment, they get every, they get all kinds of things wrong, big things wrong. He said, but if I misplace a comma in something I write, they're all over me talking about how inaccurate I am. And that's the problem we have. We get attacked for the slightest deviance from absolute accuracy, whereas we're faced with people who lie very comfortably. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's hard. It is. And I, we've got two minutes, so I want to give you one of those minutes before I close to just give you an opportunity to give us a charge, something that I may not have brought forth in my short half hour with you that you'd like to leave our listeners with. Well, that's tough. I guess what I would say, Melinda, is that you can't give up hope. I mean, you you don't want the world to end while you're lying there eating bonbons and reading a light-hearted novel. You want to be in the trenches, and you want to be on the front lines. I mean, I happen to be living on the front lines of global warming. I now have a berm out there because when Sandy came, I had a four-foot log crashing against my house over and over again, and if I hadn't had a poured concrete basement, I wouldn't be here. And I don't want that anymore, so I've now built a berm that I hope will stop the logs. And and people say to me, how do you keep going, Joan? How do you keep doing this? I think you keep adapting. You have to keep adapting, and you have to face reality and face the fact that we are in a, in a limited resource planet that cannot go on indulging us. When I put new batteries in my mouse today, I said to myself, how did they manage to turn this thing, which used to run forever with no batteries, into something that had to have batteries? I thought that's the American way. So we have to try to fight that. Joan, unfortunately, our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I want to recommend all three of your books because if anybody is teaching us how to feed the world, you are. So the first one, again, is The Feeding Web. And these are issues in nutritional ecology. The second one is This Organic Life, Confessions of a Suburban Homesteader. And that one has recipes. And the third, Growing, Older, A Chronicle of Death, Life, and Vegetables. 
Joan Gussau has been my guest. She is a professor emeritus at Columbia University Teachers College, where she has enlightened students for more than 40 years about nutritional ecology. She is an author, food policy expert, environmentalist, and gardener. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Joan, thank you so much for being an inspiration for so many. Thank you, Melinda. It's been a pleasure to be with you.